Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cloud Wars Live, where generally we talk about today's digital revolution and the way it's shaken everything up. But more recently, we've also, of course, been talking about the things that's on everybody's mind around the world. That doesn't usually happen, but I think we're in one of those times right now with COVID-19. So it's having pretty wild impact as well. But we're carrying on here with our discussions with some of our digital all-star monthly guests. And today we're delighted to have back our regular speaker, Sean Amirati, who every month comes to speak with us about uh, Amirati on innovation. Sean's a professor at Carnegie Mellon, where he helps in the corporate startup lab, big companies think like entrepreneurs, think like little high growth companies. He's also a podcaster, a serial entrepreneur, an author. Sean, thanks for being with us. Always good to see you. Thanks for having me, Bob. Sean, we, we, we chatted a little as uh, we were getting set up here. Um, as a venture capitalist and working with some uh, startup companies, uh, you mentioned that the co-CEO thing that is sort of in the air here, uh, most recently with SAP, sometimes comes up uh, among some of your portfolio companies. What, what, what's their view on it and what's your reaction? Yeah, I mean, so certainly not all of them, right? Some of them, there's a clear CEO and, and clear other people. But sometimes you have, you know, two founders who really started the business together, think of themselves as partners in crime, and they'll come to you uh, kind of with this proposal like, hey, we've been thinking rather than one of us be in charge, what if we were both in charge together? Uh, and, um, you know, but there are exceptions to every rule we've, we, we've, we did it one time for one season with one company. But in general, uh, I think my reaction is kind of similar to the feedback you provided to SAP, right? Which is like, if, if to say somebody's in charge, th that implies somebody's in charge, not two people are in charge. It sort of implies that, that nobody's in charge when, when uh, multiple people are in charge. And I think if you think about the leadership we've sh that's been shown over this crisis, you know, I thought you did a, just a wonderful job talking about uh, Mark's leadership at Salesforce and his his sort of uh, remarkable pivot, given the, the the both economic and health crisis that we're in the middle of right now. Right, the, the reality is that's why that's that's the benefit to one person clearly having the buck stop with him or her. Right, think how much more complicated those pivots would have been if the hospital had called two people and then they had to talk about it and think about it versus the ability for one person to act decisively. And I think, you know, make the, I mean, clearly in the case of what Mark did with and is doing with Salesforce, make the world a better place, but, but also allow the company to respond as it needed to so that it can hopefully come out the other side of this stronger from, from all the other uh, dimensions as well. Sean, you know, since you, you mentioned that, um, I can understand in some part that, you know, the Mark Benioff, uh, he was the, you know, the creator of the idea for Salesforce and some ways the creator of the idea for cloud and he for 20 years, I mean, somebody of my vintage, 20 years is not all that much. Somebody more your age, 20 years, <laughs> a long time for most 20 years, two decades. That's a lot of time. And he has been in there, you know, full force, high energy, high impact, you know, all in all the time for it. So I almost got a sense a couple of years ago, okay, is this in perhaps the beginning of the end of Mark's full-time immersion here? And he's going to move to the next adventure of his life when he named Keith. But 
for whatever the, the two things were there. And Keith was a phenomenal um, high-level executive at Salesforce for a lot of years. So it's no knock on him. But I also remember thinking at the time, you just, you can't, you, you whatever title you put on a person, co-CEO or make, the other person, the super CEO and Mark, it, it's, you, it just can't be done sometimes, right? The laws of physics are such that certain bodies draw more mass to them and uh, are just more influential. They, they have more heft and no description, no painting, no colors, no titles are going to change that. So yeah. from a big company like Salesforce to some of your portfolio companies, right? There's a, as you said, there's a reason that a person is in charge. That's right. And I should say, you know, Keith, is a CMU alum actually, and uh, has been really great to the university. He created the Block Center here, which is actually uh -huh. a fascinating center on campus, looking at a lot of the societal impacts of technology and, and has been a great supporter. So, so completely agree, but with all the things you said and, and also appreciate the remarkable things he's done for the world as well. But I think if you want, if, if, if a person, a founder wants to get to a point where they're going, where they want to take on the next adventure in their life, they need to do it like Bill Gates has done it, right? Like there's a very big difference between getting out of the way and handing the reins over to somebody else. And that doesn't mean that you have no influence. I, I suspect uh, Bill Gates has had plenty of influence after making that transition, but really clearly pointing all the energy at somebody else versus this sort of sharing of responsibilities that I think it becomes confusing. And look, the, the impact of a founder on a company is, is amazing. It's part of what makes it remarkable to do the job that I get to do every day. Founders are some of the, the most creative and innovative people, and they have a, a combination of kind of intellectual courage and comfort being contrarian that makes them pretty, pretty remarkable. And so I think it's great to, it's great to have the founder involved in the business, but I think if you want the founder involved in the business and the founder needs to be involved in the business, making those, those decisions, not, you know, sort of half in half out. And then more generally, when you just think about governance, right, the sort of corporate governance issues around this, I think ultimately the, the buck needs to stop with somebody and that should be the CEO. And it's, it's really hard to, to fragment that across, across multiple people. I know that it's a more common structure in Germany, which I think probably is part of, was part of the appeal there, but I think it just, it's, it's a challenging structure in general to execute against. Yeah, and uh, Sean, you know, I was at Oracle for uh, many of the Mark Hurd, Safra Katz years, including uh, several when, They'd been elevated from president to CEO. They never used the co-CEO term. They were just each <laughs> CEOs. They just had were, two CEOs there. That's right. Two, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but any company, um, you know, where Larry Ellison's still there, again, no, no knock at either Saf or Mark, but he was always the CEO, whatever his title was. So, but don't have the, you know, two people running the company. I went, do you have any, given any thought to, is there something about the tech industry that, that uh, you know, sort of nurtures this idea along because as I'm not aware of any other company, at least based in the U.S., that has co-CEOs. Uh, I'm not aware of any. I I don't know of companies who've done it in the U.S. It's not something that I've studied closely, and I don't even have a ton of context for this. But I have heard it's a more common German leadership structure. I don't I don't have a ton of details on that, but I have heard that from from folks in passing. The other thing about and I just know this from 
one of our partners who's a big German company that we do work with at CMU, the, the board at, in a German company is structured a little differently than boards in the US are as well. So they have different representatives on the board and I think the, the boards are more operationally involved than you typically see in an American company. So there's probably some cultural things there. Um, I think in tech, part of what you're seeing is, um, how do I say this and not sound disrespectful? I think in the case of a, of a to your point on Larry Ellison with, with those two, right? In a situation like that, I think sometimes founders kind of want to have their cake and eat it too, like push some of the uninteresting stuff off to other people, but still keep involved in the, in the interesting stuff. And I'm not, you know, I don't have any inside knowledge on Oracle, so I don't know for sure that that's the case, but I, my sense is just from things I've heard from people, from other people that sometimes becomes the appeal to it in tech. And, you know, the reality is we're, you know, the, the, digital revolution that we've lived through over the last 30 years, right? The, the people, the, the Ellison's, the, the Larry and Sergey, these Mark Zuckerberg, these are the Mellons and Carnegie's of this generation, right? um, And so, you know, you just, I think you reach a certain level of, of wherewithal and, and you start wanting to, to do a bunch of different things. And that's, that's probably a natural human reaction. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I'm not aware of other companies in the U S moving forward with a structure like this. Sean, one thing I wanted to ask you about involving SAP and for anybody who uh, hadn't heard about this, one of the reasons they're sort of in the news lately is they had uh, Bill McDermott left last fall to go to service. Now they elevated two fantastic young executives to be co-CEOs, Christian Klein and Jen Morgan. And early this week, um, SAP made the announcement that Jen Morgan was leaving as co-CEO and SAP said it's because in times like this, they needed to have a simpler, cleaner decision-making structure and org structure. Um, But one of the things that came up, Sean, in the uh, SAP earnings call the other day, Christian Klein mentioned that through over the last few months leading up to the whole COVID-19 crisis, but certainly during that, he said they've been able to get 30% now of their uh, of their business, he said, is a no-touch business. It's all digital. There's no human intervention <clears throat> from the time a customer selects and chooses what he or she wants to the time it's actually provisioned. I was surprised by that number, that it, it seemed high, it's surprisingly high. I, I wonder, you look at things from a lot of new companies as well as big established companies. What's your sense of that uh, 30% as a mark that's either high and going to get higher quickly, or um, are we lagging behind where things should be in that? Yeah, I think um, I think that it, it probably depends a little bit on the, on the verticals that you're that you're selling and marketing into. Um, but I think what you're going to see is a lot of trends that felt like they were far off as we come out of this crisis are going to feel just much more inevitable, right? So uh, remote work, right? Every single one of our companies and, and certainly almost every company in the world right now is trying to figure out how to, to do most, or in, in the case of all of our companies, all of their work in a distributed fashion, 
I don't think when this is over, we're going to go back to, you know, we're going to keep at 100% of work distributed. But I do think you're going to see a lot more remote work now than you, you would have seen kind of if this crisis hadn't happened. Similarly, you know, I teach at Carnegie Mellon. We, in about a week, transition, you know, we told our students while they were on spring break, basically, if you can stay home, stay home. Now, we had some students that were international students that hadn't left and for and, and maybe by the time that decision came down they weren't able to get home so we still have about 400 students on campus and the, the school is doing an amazing job keeping them them safe and and adapting kind of their living situation to to accommodate them and it's you know I think that's amazing but the reality is most of our students the vast majority are home and they're taking classes online uh, the classes that that I'm teaching right now um, that's Ran the sample that I have, 100% of my students are now off campus. I'm not on campus. I'm teaching from, from the, actually the same exact place I'm doing this recording from with you. And we have students in China. I have students uh, in Europe, right? So they're literally distributed around the world and 100% remote. I think when this, when this ends and, and for education, it, it might, you know, we might come back to in-person even a, a little later. We'll, we'll see. Right now, CMU has said, we want, you know, when we're, as of when we're recording this, CMU is saying, we know we won't be back on campus before August at the earliest. Um, but, you know, the chancellor of the University of Pittsburgh, it was reported in the PG this week, told his team to be, be ready to go till January, for example. So, uh, you know, TBD, but it's going to be a while, I think, before we're, we're back, at least the summer session as well. I think when we go back, I suspect there will be a lot more hybrid education than there was when we came into it, right? So these trends that felt like if you would have asked the, you know, the dean at my school, what do you think about online distance learning? He, he would have said, yeah, it's, it's really important. And in fact, Tepper had set up an online hybrid MBA program, but man, this has accelerated this path to that, to that future. Now there are other, there are other parts of the economy that I just think, um, I think you're you're going to see you're going to see them adapt and 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 sort of shed this even within education. You know, I have a, a second and a third grader. Um, they're doing distance learning right now. Uh, the teachers are both both of their teachers are doing an amazing job making the best of the situation they're in. But I think the only thing this has taught myself and the other parents is we would like them back in a classroom every day because I think you know elementary age kids just don't learn as well over Zoom as they do in a classroom. Uh, and so, so certain, certain things, I think you'll see it snap back to just the way it was before. So I think how this impacts a, a company like SAP is, you know, there are probably parts of their business that, that, if, that they would have said, okay, you know, we expect this process of digital transformation to put us in a situation where, you know, the, the way this service is delivered and, and, the, and you know, we expect it to be no touch, completely digital three years from now. And I, I think what you're going to see is those forecasts get pulled up dramatically where it makes sense. I mean, just one, one last example is, is online grocery delivery, right? You know, so many people told me, oh, I would never get my groceries delivered uh, through, through a, a service like that. And, you know, lo and behold, as, um, as has been said before, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, right? So uh, lo and behold, uh, this crisis has taught many of them that, hey, I can save an hour or two a week if I, 
if I Instacart my groceries instead. So, so we'll see. Um, but my sense is that's what you're seeing there. We're seeing it across our companies. There are businesses that we have investments in that it's pulled up a lot of these things that were further out on the roadmap because of that. Uh, and in some cases created real tailwinds for the business. Uh, in, in other, and even in those cases, obviously they would much prefer to, to not have this crisis going on. And in other parts of the business, uh, we are still like right up against the, 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 the economic and, and health challenges. And, and while health has to be the priority right now, like the economic stuff is, is right behind it, obviously. Hey, Sean, a couple more things I wanted to check with you on. I like that term of hybrid education. Uh, it, but it's just an interesting approach that I think we're going to see hybrid in, you know, a lot of parts of our lives. But um, in previous episodes, you've had some great insights into the company we work and perhaps the misperception that it itself in, tried to create here that it's a, it's a tech company. It's just yeah. like, you know, Facebook or Google or somebody went clear. It is. And you said it's a commercial real estate business. So in the commercial real estate field, they were tinkering with some of these new models like rework and spine. They said, okay, we're set. We've got some digital going. We're ready for the 21st century. Then this hits. And then a lot of businesses say, we're not going to have everybody come to headquarters anymore. Have you thought some about, you yeah. know, what's going to, yeah. what's that so, going to look like? So, so the problem for WeWork specifically is as you peel the onion back, it looks like, it looks like that situation was even more screwed up than anybody appreciated. So my sense is the only path out for WeWork at this point is to is to really rip the Band-Aid off, you know, have the equity holders get get completely washed out here. As as people probably saw who've been following that saga, SoftBank had has actually pulled an offer, um, blaming it on some things that feel a little bit uh opportunistic to put it diplomatically um and i think uh their shareholders are rightly going to take that to the courts and we'll see where that all where that all nets out um but but i think more generally as we move to this you know not completely working remotely but this sort of you know more remote work than ever before i think you're gonna see that be an incredible tailwind for the co-working spaces once they adapt to it. And, and although we work as a business, you know, none of the shareholders may realize the value of that. I think co-working as a trend, it, you know, is going to, to really benefit from that because if, you know, if you're, if you're going to do this sort of hybrid style of work, right, you're going to want to provide these sort of mixed use places for your, for your teams to, to go to at least part of, part of the time. And I think, I think, um, you know, th this, this is going to be very, very compelling for the commercial real estate space in general. What I'm interested in is, will one of the big commercial real estate companies take this opportunity to, to basically execute their own Disney Plus strategy here, right? Because um, they do have assets and balance sheets and are well managed in a way where, the, where like many of them could, you know, probably redesign and, and launch kind of a startup within their entities to, to, to do that. And I think, I think that's an incredible opportunity uh, for some of the, the large established players there um, to, to be determined if any of them ultimately do that. Cause certainly the, the, 
the, the core part of their business is going to be damaged pretty dramatically as, as I think traditional office space looks very different, but you know, let's say it again, right? A crisis is a terrible thing to waste. This is an opportunity for them to maybe accelerate into that future together. And speaking of Disney plus, I don't know if you saw 50 million subscribers now. <laughs> so, uh, they, they are now a third of Netflix in two quarters, right? <laughs> so remember, like the end of the first quarter, we were all excited about roughly 25 million, 26 million subscribers. They come out with their next quarter results and like, oh yeah, by the way, we, we almost doubled that again. We're over 50 million. And just to put that in context, obviously it was an earlier time. Obviously uh, bandwidth proliferation was not as broad as it is today. Um, I think, you know, I, I wrote a whole book on, on how entities with product market fit scale. And one of the things we talk a lot about is what I call catalyzing events in that book. I think the COVID crisis was 100% a catalyzing event for the, for the Disney Plus startup. Uh, so, so I get all of that. But just contextually, what Disney Plus did last quarter took Netflix two years and one quarter, right? I mean, wow. it's... It, like this is the case study for corporate innovation. And actually going back to this commercial real estate space, don't forget Disney's core business, theme parks, it, it, you know, I, I think it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a poor choice. Would you rather be in the theme park business or in the office space business? They, they both have challenges right now, right? Uh, but I think, you know, credit to the, to the Disney team to have a solution like this that, that's out there that's, that allows them to have this sort of creating their future instead of being, being disrupted by the future. Yeah, Sean, uh, what you just said there, uh, creating your own future, it reminds me, oh, 30 years ago, I was traveling out to San Francisco a lot, and I used to listen to this radio station out there. There was this thing, Sean, you probably don't remember, but they were called radio stations <laughs> and a terrestrial uh, program. They were like podcasts? Is that what they're... Uh, yeah, well, kind of, sort of. Okay. Um, yeah, but uh, there was this station called KFOG, uh, great, you know, classic rock music station, but they, they would have a news program. The guy was kind of half serious. The name was Scoop Misker. And at the end, he'd always say, well, that's our news fog heads. If you don't like ours, go make some of your own. And I, he was ahead of his time with that. But Sean, I wanted to ask you before we go, through, uh, you know, of all the industries, you studied lots of different sorts of companies and business models and the impact of change and where things are headed. Um, everybody's, you know, got some struggles right now. But what's your view on the airline business? You know, what will an airline have to do when things get loosened up here to go from, where are they at now, like one, two percent capacity? How do they get back up to a profitable, sustainable model? Yeah, so so I think last time when we were talking about this, we we talked about sort of different companies and you know who who was well positioned coming into this and who wasn't. And you know, we made the reference, you know, you can tell who's swimming naked when the tide goes out, yeah. which is the the sort of famous quote about economic recessions. Uh, so, I mean, the airline companies in general have taken all of their profits and plotted into stock buybacks uh, to put themselves in a, in a very, very weak situation coming into this. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I think 
certainly some of the assets have values, but have value. And I think certainly transportation is going to be important, even if it's less important um, than it was before. So, it, you know, similar to if we don't need to be in an office every day, I also suspect a lot of meetings that we used to think we would have to get on a plane and fly to, we'll figure out how to do remotely. So I think just demand, even, even once we're completely out of this, leaving aside the question of how long that is, I suspect demand will never get back to the levels it was before. That's kind of my intuition. The, the challenge is from, from here to there, um, most of those companies have, have been incredibly aggressive on the way up. And it's not that I'm a, you know, a saying a stock buyback never makes sense, but man, what if they would have used that money to invest in innovation instead of basically, you know, artificially inflating the value of their stock so they could get a nice bonus? Um, I think they'd be, they'd all be in, in better spots today. Uh, and so, you know, when I, the, you know, I, and I should say like, I, I went to, to, to a, a, a college where like, we were very proud to say that like we taught capitalism in the, in the, truest sense of the word. And what they taught me there was capitalism means some companies succeed and some companies fail. And if you take risk, you also need to be comfortable with the, the consequences of the, the risk that you're taking. It feels to me like um, many of them took some risk. They're now caught swimming with no clothes on because they've been, uh, they've been um, you know, aggressive, right? And being aggressive, if, if, if things shake out differently, then, then maybe you end up in a, in a very different position based on the bets that you're taking there. But it feels to me like these businesses, while they may get propped up in the short term, ultimately what they're going to need to do is, is take those assets and, and reconstitute most of them to be a more rational business going forward with a different level of demand and probably introduce some innovation to make it a more, a more safe uh, experience and a more pleasant experience uh, for everybody involved. Um, I mean, airports themselves are going to be, I think, some of the places most people stay away from the longest, just because even if you could make the flight itself a clean and sanitary experience, just, you know, all the things from when you park your car to when you get in that airplane, that's going to be, it's going to be really, really challenging. Um, and it's not that I don't, I mean, I don't think 1% capacity is, is the steady state conclusion either but my sense is a decent percent of what they thought as peak capacity um, is is never going to come back and so they need to, to reimagine their businesses uh, based on that and so so the question that I have is are there some other business models that that may make sense for them to think about exploring so and I realize these are very, you know, united and, and the examples I'm going to cite are very, very different scale. But uh, we both spend a lot of time in California and Surfair uh, was an incredibly uh, compelling model for a period of time, right? Where people basically had a subscription model that allowed them to, to do these short flights from Santa Barbara, LA, San Francisco, and they didn't fly into the major airports, right? They flew into the to the kind of regional airports, and a number of um, uh, a number of my colleagues were just fanatics about their surf air experience, um, and so so I feel you know I feel like 
well, it may not be exactly the Surfair experience, right? That's a different business model. That's a subscription instead of transactional business model. So it's probably transparently too late for the major carriers to, to figure that out where they sit today. They, you know, that they've, they've been caught swimming uh, with no clothes on at this point, but are we going to travel on airplanes again at some point? Yeah, I suspect, you know, we'll, we'll go way back up from the level we are today. And I think uh, some business model innovation becomes probably a necessary ingredient on how you get from here to there. Here to there. That's the question, Sean. Good stuff. Thanks, Bob. Well, thank you, my friend. Thanks for being here. Um, hang in there. Uh, glad to hear you and your family are doing well. Stay safe out there, Sean. And thanks again for being with us. Thank you, Bob. Same to you. All right. Thanks to all of you folks for being with us here at Cloud Wars Live. We'll see you next time. And until then, please stay safe, stay healthy, stay generous. See you soon.